the stuff I've been learning in the last few years makes me think that our civilization is heading for a collapse and and we won't there's no way the planet will be able to support 8 billion people who currently live on it that's an advisory board member from doctors for nutrition dr peter johnson who has a caveat of course about the collapse of society and that is if we continue to live the way we are Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people, yes? The stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Just like most of us, Peter has had a long and complex life journey. You'll hear about some of that journey during this podcast. Peter is an enthusiast of a plant-based diet, and you'll hear about that in this episode. Beyond that, he'll explain why it is important that we all follow such a diet if we're concerned about the climate crisis, if we're concerned about our global emissions. Let's listen now as Peter talks about the climate crisis, a plant-based diet, why it's a good thing for both us as individuals and the world generally. I met Peter at a Doctors for Nutrition event in Melbourne, entitled Dine with a Doc, featuring U.S. cardiologist Dr. Kim Williams. The sold-out event was held at Veggie Tribe in Melbourne's Little Latrobe Street. It was on Monday, January 22, that I talked with Peter, so let's have a listen to that conversation now. Peter, your biography is long and complex, so are, are you able to give me a potted history of how you arrived at where you are now? Uh, yes, it is kind of... Long and complex. Um, wasn't a direct route. Um, I started out out of school, going to teachers' college, and was really bored. Left before they pushed me because I was partying and not working, and then uh, thought about hotel management briefly, and then went to university and did an arts degree, psychology, in politics and philosophy, and. Um, then I decided to do biology because I wanted to study what causes ageing. I got obsessed about human ageing for about seven or eight years. So I did the BSc honours in zoology with all the genetics I could find at that time and then a PhD in genetics in Canberra. Um, I was from New Zealand. And, uh, and then a postdoc in Montreal to study ageing and the causes of ageing, but that postdoc wasn't, uh, didn't go well. Um, a bully boss and under-equipped lab and getting disillusioned about the precariousness of academia, relying on securing grant money. And, and so I walked away from it and ski bum for a year in the Rockies in Canada and then went down to San Francisco to get into being a social political activist, which I did for about a bit over a decade. Ended up being um, like a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary pretty much for a decade. Um, and during that time, I came back from San Francisco to Australia, got sick of the US and um, decided I needed it retrain so I did a master's in nutrition and dietetics so 
and then worked in local government in health promotion slash community development for about 15 years, but began building up private practice in dietetics. But I've had this interest in food and nutrition, food, sorry, food and environment since um, 91 when I was in Montreal and I, first, and I read John Robbins' amazing book, Diet for New America, which had three sections basically was the the ethics around our exploitation of animals the health reasons and the environmental reasons and i was already vegetarian for a decade but that prompted me to quit all animal foods it was such a powerful book so i've had an interest since then in um what agriculture is doing to our environment but in the last few years i've really been digging deeply into it and gathering so when when did you get involved with Doctors for Nutrition? Oh, right from the formation, I was helping shape the the uh, strategic planning, and you know, right from the get go. So, so how old is Doctors for Nutrition? I think it was twenty eighteen or seventeen, maybe. Um, yeah. And so, what's your role now, Peter? I'm an advisory council member. So the, they have a small board and have a few staff members. It's a charity, doesn't take any government money or industry money. Um, yeah. And they have an advisory council of, of medical and nutrition professionals, dietitians and doctors. So I contribute and volunteer a lot of time with them. Just recently you mentioned something about Aging and how you and I've seen you on a webinar where you said you wanted to live forever. So yes. how is that going? <laughs> <laughs> I'm super healthy and I, I can to, see that you look. You the one I mentioned the other night. You looked really healthy too. Yeah, well, I worked hard on staying healthy and eating well because putting the right fuel in is the most important thing. But we also need good sleep, manage stress. You know, not drinking or smoking all those things, exercise. So I do all those things as best I can, but I'm, the stuff I've been learning in the last few years makes me think that our civilization is heading for a collapse and, and we won't, there's no way the planet will be able to support 8 billion people who currently live on it the way mm -hmm. we we're living. And, um, so living to 150 or more is it's kind of irrelevant because I think things will go very pear-shaped in the next decade or two. Mm. Why, why will that happen? But what's what's going to be the key issue that turns it around? Uh, oh, there's a lot of pressure points and things that could tip um, us into collapse. Um, we're past peak oil and a whole whole society is based on fossil fuel energy. Everything you see, everything you touch, everywhere you go, it's all driven by fossil fuel and we kind of invisible, we just accept it and like even our food, it's ten to twenty calories of fossil fuel needed to get one calorie of food mm. to your table. Mm. You know, this is wildly unsustainable. Um, yeah. the, we could have nuclear war. We, the, with climate change, crops are not as productive. We could have famine. The food 
security around the globe is already precarious and many large countries like the UK and Japan are, are not self-sufficient nutrition-wise. They have to import lots of food. So any shipping breakdowns or pirating, you know, the um, could be economic collapse. The Western nations are all heavily in debt and the whole financial house of cards might come down. We mm. might see tipping points with like uh, the permafrost in the, in the northern hemisphere melting and releasing massive amounts of methane or the, the ocean currents. Some of them uh, could stop and put Europe into a major um, mm. new cold era. Um, oceans are acidifying and heating up. So it's the ocean fisheries are near collapse. Insect populations are crashing, so we're running mm. out of pollinators, and 70% of our food requires pollination, mm. and that's mm. largely driven by pesticides. But and the other thing, other so many things like the the sperm count and fertility rates are dropping globally, at mm. perhaps two percent a year. So we we may just die out naturally because we can't breed enough. Well, that's pretty, fairly disheartening, Peter, but. Meeting you the other night, you looked like a pretty optimistic fellow. So where does that come from? What? <laughs> <laughs> I am, but I, I, I think anyone but an optimist probably would cut their wrists if they did, keep diving into this as deep as I do. Yeah. So I I'm, I'm, seem to have a weird personality that I'm pretty resilient to these sort of things. Although, you know, increasing, I'm 65 and I hope to live to 100, but I increasingly doubt that, I'll get to live out my natural span of life that mm. things might turn to custard in a really bad way before then. Peter, you appear to have a couple of businesses based on correct eating and living living well. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a dietitian and run a private practice, so I see patients one-to-one, which is a joy, helping people get well, eating better, Um and I'm, I'm lifestyle medicine trained and qualified, which means I look at not just food, but exercise, sleep, stress, substance use, et cetera, um, as key pillars of well-being. And it's, so I do that and I run with two colleagues retreats. Um, so seven day retreats in the Yarra Valley where we teach those same things, but in more depth and along with along with yoga, meditation, gentle exercise, cooking classes, et cetera, um, and giving people a really in-depth um, kickstart to living more healthily. Um, mm. And 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 a nice side benefit is that the people I reach, either through private practice or giving podcast interviews or the retreats, et cetera, Hopefully, or hearing my talks, eat less animal food, and so it'll lighten our footprint on the planet. When and why did you begin to follow a plant-based diet? I was a vegetarian since 1981, after living with a vegetarian girlfriend. And as per earlier, I heard about this book called Diet for a New America by John Robbins, 
when I got to Montreal. Oh, was it on my way to Montreal in India? A, a woman told me about it. So I got a copy and read it, and that just blew me away. And I thought, right, I'm done with animal food and transitioned to being fully plant-based and have never looked back. And like most people who don't eat animal food, the only regret we have is we wish we'd done it earlier or been born and bred this way. But you, you're not a climate scientist, but looking through the series of slides you sent me, you appear to have all their attributes and much of their knowledge. Can you tell me about how you achieved that understanding of the climate crisis? Uh, well, I'm a scientist by training with my doctorate, so I can evaluate and read research. But I, I just, I'm a very voracious learner. Like I just spend all my spare moments in my day learning about environment, geopolitics, history, economics, um, just a wide-ranging, very curious mind. And I'm, you know, when you rang, I was washing dishes but listening to a podcast. When I'm when I'm driving, I listen to audio books or podcasts when I'm at the gym or running or so even when I'm in the shower, I'm listening to stuff and shaving. And so I, I, I don't watch TV, you know, if I do, it's rare and it's very selective, but I use my spare time in my day when I'm not doing regular work, learning nonstop. And this has been decades in the case. Um, my 10 years as a political activist, aside from the normal activist things like organising rallies and protests and meetings and running our media, there was constant study, like all every day, whenever we could. Peter, can you give me some actual numbers on, say, a plant-based diet compared to that one that revolves around meat? Uh yeah, sure. What numbers in terms of the impact on the earth? and? Uh, yeah, well, it's generally sort of, depending on the country and the climate and the terrain, like it, it varies, but the footprint of animal food, the same amount of land would feed, to feed one omnivore eating animal foods and, and plant foods would usually feed at least 10 people who are strictly plant-based. So it's an... It takes enormously less land and um, and a lot less water, a lot less fertiliser, fossil fuels. Um, hopefully it's organic so there are not, not the pesticides being used because they're now identified as the leading, leading cause of insect population crashing, um, which is dropping at perhaps 2% a year. Um, the amazing work from... Oxford University academics, Paul and Nemesic, showed that 83% um, of the world's farmland is produced, dedicated to producing animal food, but it produces only 18, 1.8% of our calories, which is tiny. It's, it's woefully inefficient. And that if, if the whole world switched to being plant-based, we could literally put 76% of the world's farmland back to wilderness. And that would give an enormous opportunity for biodiversity to recover. And particularly if we stop pumping chemicals into the environment, particularly, you know, so many pesticides. Um, and, and also animals, animal agriculture uses a lot of antibiotics. It's estimated 
that 70 to 80 percent of the world's antibiotics are fed to animals to to prevent them getting sick because they, they're kept in stressful confined cramped conditions when they're factory farm like chickens and pigs and increasingly cattle um but it makes them grow faster and but this is a scandalous mm. waste of a really really valuable resource and so what we're seeing is mm. more antibiotic resistance around the globe so we're coming mm. to the point where if you scratch your leg and it gets infected and it's not treatable then your only option to not die is to amputate that limb Mm. This is pretty grim, mm. and you, we won't be able to mm. do hip surgeries or cesarean sections, and a lot of stuff will be off the table because it'll be too dangerous. So this is, you know, going back to pre-penicillin era. If we're not careful, or if we don't put a lot of money into developing replacement antibiotics, these will these will get squandered if they're used in animal ag. Peter, can you tell me how it actually feels to be on a plant-based diet? Like how you feel as a person. Um, beyond beyond it's the been so long. beyond the holier than now sort of thing, like, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been so long. I don't know what it feels like to not be, but <laughs> I so I feel good. Like I'm 65. I have no aches or pains, no meds. Yesterday I was at a, a yoga workshop doing an hour and a half of handstands and drills. So that's many 20 year olds couldn't do that. Mm, you're right there. Um, I compete in speed windsurfing. I ski like a maniac. I used to race. I can run. I go to the gym. I leg press 170, 180 kilos. I'm a I'm a tall, skinny guy, but you know, so that my my brain and my body works as well as they can because they're getting the right fuel. I mean, I always use the analogy of a car. If you pull up to the servo and a petrol car and you put diesel in, things are going to go badly, and that's what most of the population are doing. So I feel great, but that's what I, where I get reminded of how good it can feel is when I see patients who change. And a week later, or on our retreats, by day five or six, they're glowing. And they say, I can't believe how good I feel. I've got more energy, I'm more focused, I've got better sleep, my aches and pains have diminished or gone. This is stuff, it's so normal, my colleagues and I expect it. This is just a standard thing. When people correct their diet to what what's our proper diet for us as a species and they take out all the processed food and animal food and cut back the salt, fat, sugar, eat things that we're more evolved to eat, they do well. You know, the body body's a miraculous self-healing machine. So if you stop hearing it, you know, you, you don't have that injury breakfast, lunch and dinner three times a day at least, then it, it starts to heal really fast. So what do you think a good diet, a reasonable diet should be? Plants, whole plants, unmolested, largely whole plants. So fruit, vegetables, legumes, whole grains. This is the things that a gorilla would eat. (laughs) You know, they're vegan and they're huge, strong, healthy animals. The primates are almost all plant-based. You know, a few of them opportunistically will grab some animal food, but we're, we're smart animals, you know. We learn that those animal foods have more calories, but we've, we haven't got the anatomy or physiology of a, of a carnivore. We haven't got the dentition. We haven't got the claws or the speed. We, we're opportunistic. We've got a big brain and we learn to use tools and got clever and domesticated animals. And for many 
millennia, that didn't matter because we didn't do lo live long enough for the cancers and the heart disease to catch up. But in today's world where we don't die so much of violence or infections, then it's, it, it comes back to haunt us and to the point that it's estimated about 80% of people in the hospital are there because of what they put in their mouth. And some of that cigarettes and, and alcohol, sure, but the bulk of it is food. And the, the, the largest study on the causes of death and disability, the Bill and Melinda Gates um, study, showed that dietary factors are the single biggest cause worldwide of death and disability. So if you fix that, then you can empty out the hospitals and save billions of dollars in healthcare expenditure and, and also suffering and misery for the poor people who are sleepwalking through health disasters. All over is just wonderful good sense, Peter. So, um, it does. Yeah, but... and, it, it, and people come to it from different directions. They might be worried about the environment, which is why I give these talks on food systems and environment. They might be worried about ethics for the how the poor animals are treated, which is horrendous. And I, I certainly, that resonates with me as well, but my, I'm primarily a health professional and I, I, it's an utter health disaster how most people eat. And it breaks my heart seeing what people put in their trolleys and feed themselves and their kids. But you can't just rock up and say you shouldn't buy that, you know. Peter, where are we and we being humanity headed with the climate crisis? Um... I think it looks very grim. I, I, I don't think we'll... Some humans will probably survive, but I think our civilization will collapse globally. There'll be places... I, I think I heard you mention on Saturday night that, that to somebody else, you were oh, just walking past and I heard you saying about we we're about 25 years ahead of us. So. Yeah, I think if we last 25 years without a collapse, it would be a miracle. So how do we avoid that? I think it's too late. I think we have too many people. If Professor Bill Rees is interesting, and I cite him in the talk, like I've listened to his stuff quite a bit. He's given a lot of talks. He's an emeritus professor from Canada, um, really smart guy. He he basically argues that uh, we're not wired to to take to take into consideration medium long term risks. We evolved to deal with you know running from a short-term risk saber-toothed tiger mm. that jumps at us you know that long-term planning we're not so good at and we don't have the, the governance systems to allow it we don't have the the wherewithal you know that if any one country started to take the necessary measures they would be at a, it would be an enormous economic cost compared to their trading partners because it would mean that we put them at an economic disadvantage but their government would get voted out by the citizens because the citizens all scream blue murder about the economic pain that we're living beyond our means. We're living in a fool's paradise. How do we negotiate our way through this and ultimately out of the problem? Or can we? Well, I'd, I'd, I agree with Professor Bill Rees. I don't think we can. I think nature will impose... We've got two, two um, choices. We can do the necessary changes. It means urgently shrinking our economy, our consumption and our population, like not killing people, but just having a whole lot less babies, which is happening, but too slowly. But, but also, or that nature will impose changes on us. 
and that will be brutal and painful. So where does our diet fit into the, into the hierarchy of changes we need to help resolve the climate crisis? Well, for most people, it's the biggest and the e- easiest thing they can do. They've got the power three times a day at the minimum to to massively lighten their, their ecological footprint and their, their, their load on the planet, There's, which means less consumption of land, water, pesticides, fossil fuels, everything. Plants are eating the bottom of the food chain is the most efficient way to eat, and it happens to be the most healthy. So that's such a powerful thing. Flying is significant, uh, but I think I heard, I've read that it's about 3% of greenhouse gas emissions globally at aviation, but there's some complicating factors with other things that planes put out. Um, so it's probably a bit more than that, but food is huge. Peter, if you were in charge of the world, what was the one thing you would do now in response to the climate crisis? I I wish there was one thing. I think we need to do about 20 things. Yeah, there is no one thing, is there? Um, Obviously, stopping eating eating animal food would be important. Having taxes on animal food, having much higher taxes on fossil fuels to give – building in the externalities, like the cost to the environment and health, because there's a there's a cost to health with the particle pollution from burning fossil fuels. Millions of people die a year from that. Um, so if we build in those externalities and, and factor into the health and environmental costs to both food, animal food, and fossil fuel use, that would help. Um, I think I would like to, it would also help if, if we moved from the systems of government and elections to, uh, um, what do you call them, um, uh, citizens, um, committee? Yeah. citizens' committees where they randomly, um, uh, this is what Extinction Rebellion are calling for, um, Ireland used this to to get a decision on legalising abortion and, and gay marriage. No, it was gay marriage. So the citizens' committees, so they randomly um, tap about 100 people on the shoulder from across society, and then they put them in a room with, with different experts who put mm, all sides of the yeah. case, and then they vote. And you can get a decision that's free from, or largely free from, uh, the vested interests, you know, like the fossil fuel lobby or the animal ag lobby, and the, and then if that is binding on the government, then then you can actually move forward without. There's a lot of the, the inertia in governments now is because they're in fear of offending the large corporations who have a lot more power. Like we saw this in Australia when Rudd tried to impose a mining super profits tax, and he got rolled by the likes of Gina Reinhart and Twiggy Forrest. They had more power than the government. In the same when New South Wales, or was it the federal government, tried to impose pokies tax. Again, but rolled. You know, the, the gambling industry was more powerful than the government, even though most of the public would have supported these measures. Um, we don't have a truly independent media. That's a major problem. So to have a functioning democracy, you need an informed public. This is something I, I learned a lot when I in my political act, activist years. 
So Chomsky puts it well. He argues that the mainstream media are just there to manufacture consent. So we need a, a well-funded public media, but then internet and social media is, is running across all of this and and you know being hijacked by malign actors, you know, like Russia or China and um, promoting disinformation. So it's a big challenge. Unless you have a well-informed, well-educated public, you're always going to have a hobbled, stunted democracy because people won't make good decisions. If they're anxious and scared for their future, they're going to vote with their hip pocket. And if that means there's a proposal for more of a fossil fuel tax, they're going to vote against it because they're scared of their petrol and power bills going up. You know, so until you have an educated, informed and secure public, they won't take courageous decisions that, that are thinking bigger than their own needs because they're fearful for their own needs, which is, you can understand, you can't blame people for that if they're facing repossession of their house or not feeding their kids or not being able to pay their power bills. Peter, is there something else you'd like to say about a plant-based diet and the, and the climate crisis or the two things together? Um, yeah, I could talk to you for a week about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've covered a fair bit. Yeah. I, I think that, that, that study by Paul Nemesek from Oxford Uni was really groundmarked. Like, that was so vast. They, they gathered data from 90% of the world's food production at, at minimum, and this... Their findings aligned with previous top-down studies. This was a fine-grained, detailed, bottom-up study, and it, it really showed the way we need to go. But even the IPCC are screaming for people to eat less meat. Um, the World Health Organization has warned us that processed meats are proven to cause cancer. Red meats are probably carcinogenic. We know from the science it's stronger than probably. There's a straight line relationship between red meat intake and bowel cancer. Pretty much suggests cause and effect. The the I just wish we could uh, more people could know this, but they're not hearing it from dietitians who don't know the science. They're not hearing it from GPs. I still hear of people being told to go low carb and eat lots of animal food by their GPs. Yeah, yeah. GPs get almost no nutrition training. Mm. You know, that's like, like getting a plumber to fix your computer. It's, you know, plumbers, they're both computer techs and plumbers, they've both got amazing skills, but they're utterly different skill sets. But they're different skills, yeah, yeah. I think I heard when Kim Williams was there, someone said, uh, I think it might have been Kim himself, he said that there are, there are doctors who are vegans and doctors who haven't read the data. So, Correct. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. And for dietitians, mm. like I'm, I'm appalled at how how far behind my profession is in this area. Peter, what's the best way for people to contact you? Uh, my website, Perfect Human Food, or um, Melbourne Lifestyle Medicine. Yep. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put all those links in in the show notes so people will be able to find them. Okay. That'll be the best way. Okay. Mm. I'm not very good with social media, but I am on Facebook with yeah. my name, just Peter Johnston. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Peter, I don't have any more questions. Is there something else you'd like to say? No, thank you for the chance to speak, Robert. Um, 
No, that's and great. It's lovely to meet you the other week. It was. I had spoken to Peter via email a few times, but first met him face to face at a Doctors for Nutrition event, Dine with a Doc, at the Veggie Tribe in Little Lonsdale Street in Melbourne, where the guest speaker was US cardiologist Dr. Kim Williams. Dr. Williams agreed to be recorded for the event, and while that was fine and the recording of his, of his voice was fine, what I didn't realise is that there was to be a Q&A at the end and so the people in the audience who asked the questions were not recorded. And so, sadly, that section of the audio is missing. But I have got what Dr. Williams said, and so we'll listen to that. Thank you so much. So hopefully everyone can hear me, and I, uh, we'll keep it nice and informal. I'll probably even take my jacket off. But uh, this is actually, no one told you, but this is a working session, okay? Um, you actually have to work for your meal tonight. <laughs> okay. um, so uh, this is, I was asked to speak on one of my least favorite research projects. Uh, and you'll see the title there, uh, What's on Our Plate. And it has to do with the fact that we spend a lot of time uh, as the, uh, the Australian Medical Association, every, the, sort of the, the, what we're supposed to do as medical societies is try to make medical care better by educating our members. And so the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, got together, they asked me to be on this committee to figure out how to prevent heart disease. And I'll go through why that is so important uh, in the United States, but it's true pretty much everywhere. Still the leading killer in the world is heart disease. And so we have so much data on how to prevent uh, people from dying of heart disease that we thought we would go and you know, sit, in a, sit in a corner and actually put all the data together. Uh, and it basically boils down to these eight things. And you might have heard American Heart Association's life's essential eight. That is healthy eating. I would probably remove the animal carcass, um, but um, I'll, I'm gonna talk a little bit more than you probably wanna hear about that particular issue. Uh, <clears throat> doing exercise, not smoking, and that in, involves other substances. You've probably seen plenty of stuff on fentanyl and crack and stuff in the United States, and hopefully it's not as rampant here. The opioid crisis, they're making movies about it. Um, there are a lot of other substances other than cigarettes that can result in cardiovascular events. Um, but quitting nicotine would be very helpful. Uh, sleeping more. So those of you who remember American Heart Association had Life Simple 7, the essential eight, that's where we added sleep. The recognition that if you do not uh, sleep at least seven hours, uh, or if you sleep more than nine hours, you end up increasing your mortality. Losing weight when appropriate, getting your normal cholesterol, normal blood sugar, normal blood pressure. It's just eight really simple things that people could do to you know, not exactly be cardiac immortal, but pretty close if you just do those eight things. And so in the United States, unlike Australia where heart disease is number two, um, and I could say that solidly because the United States is the only advanced economic country where heart disease remains the number one killer. Uh, it's fallen number two pretty much everywhere else, but there are a lot of not economically developed countries, so heart disease is number one around the world. And the numbers are, look terrible. Uh, it uh, has ethnic disparities. It's very, very expensive. And, uh, and if you've heard me talk, you've seen me slow, show this slide of how proud I am of my cardiology co colleagues 
figuring out how to put in valves from the leg and new stents and not letting them clot. We do all this stuff, but it's all mopping up the floor instead of turning off the faucet. But if you look at what we're really suffering around the world, including the United States, it's really about diet. And the number one cause of poor health is the nutrition risk that people are putting themselves at risk with their food choices uh, more than anything else. And just to give you the U.S. numbers, it's a horrific amount of diabetes and uh, obesity, so much so that we've coined a new term, diabesity. And it's unfortunate that we spend uh, $160 billion a year that we could be spending on you know, education for the poor or something, uh, and instead we're spending almost one-fifth of our gross domestic product on uh, health care for diseases that should not happen if everyone were to pay attention to the, what the data says. Instead, uh, we suffer like this. Um, have the government put out there, you need two or three uh, cups uh, of fruit and vegetables a day, and 90% of people don't do it. That was true until I moved to Kentucky. Uh, and anybody here been to Kentucky before? <laughs> uh, well, <clears throat> it's uh, a lot bigger, let's say, a state than what I thought, and I don't mean geographically. Uh, and it's unfortunate that the uh, amount of illness there is uh, <clears throat> so much more than what I was used to, and so it's a full-time job just running a department to try to keep up with it, and it would all go away if we could somehow change um, the nutrition patterns. And so we have this uh, data that you get is so foreign to hopefully uh, not like what you're seeing here, where you have all these states where the amount of obesity, and everybody looks at the dark states, but I'm looking at the whole thing in the United States. You've got one, uh, no states where any longer less than 20%, one out of five, are obese, and uh, only two that are green, meaning less than 25%. It's what we eat is having fast food everywhere, and there is data from Australia that says the same thing. If you're in a economically deprived area, you have more fast food restaurants. And if you make it inexpensive, people will eat it. You make, as a business, it's very profitable, um, but for your healthcare system, it's not working very well at all. Uh, what I, the last time I spoke with Dr. Nutrition, we didn't really have all this data on the microbiome. But I really need to tell you, I, I, don't, I try really hard not to give a talk about nutrition without including the fact that everyone has these bacteria that are in the GI tract, and they can be healthy or harmful. They're healthy if you're not eating decaying flesh, so tell all your non-vegan friends, you know, the, 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 the new mantra is, if you want your health back, you go home, you go to the kitchen, you go open the refrigerator, if you see any carcasses, you bury them in the backyard, okay? And the reason to do that is that decaying flesh actually has bacteria in them, and those bacteria species are designed really not for human health. And so they can, they change a lot of things, like how you metabolize medication, and how, you, how much gut permeability you have. So how much of this eat, the a meal that you eat is gonna go out in the stool versus getting absorbed. And so we have unique relationships between the microbiome in the GI tract, the bacteria in the, in the, uh, in the colon, all of the uh, classic risk factors 
uh, for cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, and the newer one that we needed to pay attention to a long time ago because uh, the best way to decrease inflammation is a whole food plant-based diet. And so the data I could show you is very thick. I won't spend a lot of time talking about it, but there's a lot of data. Uh, some of it, you, it would make sense to you if you'd read it. Some of it you'd never really heard of before, like the idea that cholesterol has a um, metabolite called caprosanol that doesn't go in arteries. And all you have to do is have the right bacteria in your GI tract to convert your cholesterol to caprosanol. So we all thought, probably everyone in this room thought that you lowered cholesterol with a vegan diet by not eating cholesterol. That was true. But it's also the fact that you can metabolize what cholesterol you make uh, and, and sort of get rid of it into the stool. Uh, this is one of my favorite sides to, to try and convince people it's not as complex as it looks. That's for diabetes. It turns out that um, there, in blue, there are species of bacteria that will prevent diabetes. And in red, you have ones that will increase diabetes. And you, people get to choose what kind of bacteria they have in their gut. The data on obesity is really just uh, growing, uh, and it really has an impact. That is, uh, you can change how much absorption you do of food. You can change how your insulin responds, how much inflammation there's going to be. And fecal transplant uh, may become some, something that people take seriously, because if you take a thin person and give them a obese person's stool, like a fecal transplant, they'll in, it'll increase their weight, and vice versa, the obese person would lose weight. So I, I see that we'll, I, I believe we'll see more of that as time goes on. So what does it take to fix your microbiome? It takes about two to four weeks. This is a Neil Barnard study that says a vegan vegetarian diet really will improve the bacteria and it will make you less sick, no matter what your sickness is. And so we actually have a lot of data on um, plant protein uh, improving mortality and that is throughout the medical literature. And so, uh, and we have data saying that an unhealthy plant-based diet, and it's so uh, very uh, uplifting to hear doctors for nutrition always talking about a whole food plant-based diet, okay? And that is really because a, the, this data that was published about six years ago was very clear. I don't know if you can, you can see it if you're in the front. That dotted line above the red line, the red line is increasing the amount of, uh, of animal foods and ending up with more heart disease, but the dotted line is eating an unhealthy plant-based diet. That is refined grains, fried food. It turns out that sugar and white flour and the like are actually worse for you than eating animals. So I tease my animal rights um, uh, colleagues in the United States who eat a lot of you know, vegan beignets and vegan donuts and vegan red velvet cupcakes. Uh, and I say, you know, that's really good for the planet. No greenhouse gases and it gets rid of humans. <laughs> but all of this literature is out there. And um, this is where I really would like to uh, get more to the, now that you've seen the background of what we're facing, we have a lot of data out there that talks about nutrition and disease states, particularly heart disease. And what we don't have is a lot of physicians paying careful attention to it and then applying it to themselves or to their patients. And so how many physicians do we have here? If, if you raise your hand and leave your hand up, okay? And then how many people have a physician? 
<laughs> okay? Uh, so, so, uh, so it's almost everybody in the room where the data that I'm going to talk about for a couple minutes really is important. And one of the biggest problems that we have in the physician community is on this slide. This is a New England Journal of Medicine article from 2018, really one of the best done nutrition studies ever with uh, five-year outcomes and people who were at risk that were placed on a Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean diet was going to remove the red meat uh, to very minimal amounts, and it was going to split the, the Mediterranean group into two. One was uh, having a lot of olive oil shipped to their house, and the other one was having a lot of nuts, okay? But, so, and replacing primarily with fish, some chicken, but mostly fish. And this really took off because of this image in the upper left-hand corner, a 30% decrease in air quotes, heart attack, stroke, and death, okay? Why the air quotes? Because when you take a careful look at the data, which we're gonna do, it wasn't heart attack, stroke, and death. That was a combined pre-specified endpoint. You've probably heard that over and over again if you're a physician. And so they stuck to what they said they were going to do. The problem was, that's not what happened. What happened was that it was a dramatic reduction in stroke. Getting rid of red meat lowers your stroke rate. No question. But for your heart, the heart attack rate, myocardial infarction, was exactly the same in all three groups. The cardiac death was the same. The overall mortality was the same. So that 30% reduction uh, of all events together was really driven by the improvement in stroke. Now, why is that such a problem? Is because every cardiologist heard, you know, cardiovascular improvement wait a minute, I'm not a neurologist. I thought about it in 1981, but I didn't become a neurologist. Now, they should be the only ones excited by this. All of the cardiologists should understand that it does not improve heart disease to go from red meat to fish. Um, now, of course, I, I always follow that study up with a, a little bit of, a, a, of good news for the plant-based people because they really did do a fine study and they could reanalyze it for plants which they did, and they published. It ended up in an in, in a off journal because nobody wanted to hear it. But the bottom line was that if you were doing a plant-based Mediterranean diet, they called it the vegetarian diet, it was a 42% decrease in death. And so very powerful. Um, before talking about the physician, I rarely talk about nutrition and health without mentioning a couple of things. One is chronic kidney disease. Why? because it really is a large blight on our society and it's growing around the world. And we have, this isn't, this slide is not from some rogue vegan journal, like the one I run, okay? This is actually the National Kidney Foundation asking people uh, to stop feeding animal protein to people with kidney disease because it promotes uh, renal failure, progressive rise in their numbers and ending up on dialysis all of which can be reversed uh, or halted if they just start eating plant protein instead. The other one to talk about is COVID. And so um, this, I, I know every, we're gonna have a mixture of opinions here, so I don't wanna insult anybody, but we got into big fights about this in the United States because everyone recognized one thing, vegans weren't dying of COVID. Why? Microbiome. We don't have a bad microbiome to cause cytokine storm. The inflammation that goes along with COVID was just not that bad in us. <clears throat> and so 
uh, it became, why would it become a controversy? Because there are a lot of vegan doctors saying, don't get the vaccine. Well, I think most people would recognize that 16-fold decrease in death uh, with the vaccine was very helpful. And I know 98% of Australians did get the vaccine. That's the last thing I heard. Uh, so maybe I have a friendly audience here. But you know, a lot of my colleagues, good friends, were telling people, don't do it. Uh, and yeah, there was some myocarditis in some of the athletic young men. But overall, good that it did was a lot. Um, so anyway, but, but let's be clear. The source of the argument was what I've been ta talking about, and that is if you have a plant-based diet, you have a better microbiome, and all of your risk factors, including COVID, are going to do very well. And so this is now uh, the famous slide. Um, this was how the keto wars uh, went away during COVID, because anyone who was eating bacon, eggs, cheese, ham repeatedly was getting really sick from COVID because of the microbiome. And so that was about a 50% increase in moderate to severe illness, uh, as opposed to plant-based diet, which was better than pescatarian diet. Uh, so a 73% decrease in moderate to severe illness, and still no one that I have heard uh, has refuted the idea that somebody died who was vegan from COVID. I'm sure it must have happened, I just haven't heard about it. Okay, so anyway, uh, this was published two days ago, um, so I had to change my slide set. This where they actually looked uh, at the vegetarian and plant-based diets uh, with something that I did not expect. I thought that if you were plant-based, you would get the, you know, just like the flu. We would all get the flu, and you know, I started getting the flu shot because I know that I could be completely asymptomatic and give it to some kid who would give it to his grandmother. And so, uh, you know, so absolutely, um, trying to protect everyone else, we would do you know, the uh, flu vaccine and then the COVID vaccine. Well, it turns out that, uh, surprisingly, this publication in British Medical Journal uh, showed that there was this dramatic, like a 40% decrease in incidence. I don't even know how that's possible, incidence of COVID if you're uh, doing a plant-based diet. So any, everybody you know, um, hopefully everything is all calmed down here. It's up again in the United States, and we're going to start masking again, and, that, and it'll come and go. But the fact of the matter is if everybody was plant-based, we wouldn't have this problem. Okay. So we are taking this very seriously. Um, I showed you the guidelines. The American Heart Association is very interested in food is medicine. Um, a lot of people say food as medicine, but they've changed it to food is medicine. Um, this came out, they're doing everything they can to try to stop this very expensive $4.3 trillion dollars, uh, spent in the U.S. for chronic diseases, almost all of which is related to nutrition. And, and so we're hoping uh, that we can get every physician to read the articles uh, and uh, emphasize fruit and vegetables, whole grains, and go back to what our guidelines say. And that is, everybody should be doing uh, vegetables and fruit, uh, legumes, nuts, whole grains, fish, if all you care about is decreasing stroke and you don't mind dying, right? Okay. Uh, and I actually have, pe have people, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, have people say that. I don't care about a heart attack, I don't care about dying, but please don't have a stroke. Well, how about a, let's, a, let's prevent them all? Um, anyway, getting rid of saturated fat, cholesterol, sodium, um, processed meat, really any red meat because it all has cholesterol, which we already said we want to minimize. <laughs> Refined grains and sugar-sweetened beverages uh, and trans fats. Okay, 
So that's what the guidelines say. And those guidelines were published in 2019. So three years later, we actually did a, uh, a survey. How good are we at getting guidelines into the hands of physicians and getting them to adopt them? And the answer was not very good. It was uh, very chilling. Out of 274 physicians at two uh, at Chicago universities, uh, Rush and Loyola, there was one vegan, okay, and 10 doing the Mediterranean diet. And so if you put that together, that's 4% of, of the physicians, 96% were eating things that have known increase in mortality. And so this was really disheartening. Uh, and after that, I started paying really careful attention to what medical meetings serve the doctors. So this was a medical meeting that was just stunning. They had asked me to speak. Uh, I gave them the talk. And the next morning, this was what was on the breakfast. That is processed meat, okay, and eggs with all of the mortality associated with it. And it's, you know, it's not, this is also processed meat as a World Health Organization class one carcinogen, as well as heart failure, heart attack, the kidney failure, all of the things that I've mentioned. Um, so any, I, has, I don't know if anybody was at this meeting or can recognize uh, my buddy Dave Clardy's badge to figure out which meeting that was. It was the American Society of Preventive Cardiology. Yeah. So anyway, we clearly have data. It says that all of the heart disease, kidney, stroke, everything would be dramatically improved. Our healthcare costs would, costs would be dramatically improved if we all did a whole food plant-based diet, reduce all the risk factors, um, re reduce all of the diseases, and we really should be focusing on prevention, not just, just treatment. Anyway, um, I, I, I do like talking about you know, well-done research projects usually. This one was just disheartening. It's like once I saw it in the journal, it kind of hit me really hard um, how badly we were doing. And so uh, what do you do when you have a question you just can't answer it? Anybody, anybody? You go to chat CPT, right? Okay. So I actually did. I, if I just typed it into chat GPT. If plant-based diets are associated with lower death rates, less chronic diseases, they help sustain the planet and avoid animal cruelty, why are they not widely adopted? Okay? So this is where the work comes in. Um, this is going to be recorded, right? I want your wisdom. It gave me 10 answers. And I'm actually writing up my response to their 10 answers. But I would love to hear input from anyone who uh, has a, a thought on any of these 10 things. We'll go through them real quick. Raise your hand if you recognize one that you think ChatGPT got it right or got it wrong. OK. Dr. Williams went through all the answers provided by ChatGTP. But sadly, the comments from the audience were not recorded. And so we don't have them. But what we do have will be a link in the show notes to Doctors for Nutrition and websites for which Dr. Peter Johnson is affiliated. Well, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Now, it's not for me to give advice, but I urge you to listen closely to what the two doctors had to say about a plant-based diet. It's good for you personally, and it's good for the environment. So please consider a plant-based diet. Please don't forget to check out the show notes as there'll be a few links in there that'll help you better understand a few things about 
a plant-based diet. Now I must thank you for your company, it's been great to have you along. Now I urge you to share this with your friends, put it on your networks. We need as many people as we can to understand something about the climate crisis. In this case, where food fits with the climate crisis, where food is a major contributor to global emissions. Now until we talk again, please take care, stay safe and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now you take care and stay safe.